Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. So, a couple of weeks ago, we told you about the tragic double homicide of Lynn Vest and her nephew, Jeremy Pickens. They lived on the east side of Columbus, and in 1980, Lynn, a 23-year-old young mom, left her husband and baby at home while she went to run some errands. She took along two-and-a-half-year-old Jeremy, the little boy she was babysitting for her sister. Lynn and Jeremy were found dead later that night, having been strangled and left in their car. Detectives concluded that they had been killed shortly after leaving home that morning, likely during a robbery. People were stunned at the cold, heartless murders, which took place in broad daylight in a commercial area on an otherwise typical weekday. But what I didn't get to in that episode was the fact that less than a year later, Columbus went through it all over again. A case that in many ways was very similar, in other ways not, every bit is shocking. It happened on a Sunday evening, September 13, 1981. Like Lynn Vest, Janice Beetleman was a new mom. The 21-year-old and her husband Stanley lived in an apartment complex on Beechwold Drive with their 18-month-old son, Brandon. Janice had previously worked at a local hospital, but now was devoting all of her time to being a homemaker and mother. Stanley had just been laid off from a local automotive factory where he had been working as a quality control inspector. Janice and her son Brandon had spent the evening visiting three different relatives' homes, and the night was winding down. It was about 10.30 p.m. when she finished her last trip to her mother's house, bid her mom farewell, and left saying she planned to make a quick stop at a grocery store before heading home. Then she and Brandon got into their orange and white 1974 Chevrolet Vega and pulled away. The pair never made it home. Stanley Beetleman paced the floor, making phone calls looking for his family, and at 6.30 a.m., he called Columbus Police. They told him he couldn't file an official missing persons report until Janice had been missing 24 hours. But it didn't take that long to find them. At 1.20 p.m. that afternoon, Columbus police were called to a service road under the Agler Road Bridge, just west of Sunbury Road. The service road was on the grounds of the Bridgeview Golf Course, next to Alum Creek. A man who lived on Sunbury Road summoned the police, saying he saw a car without its headlights on, driving down a gravel road toward the creek Sunday evening. It was about 10.45 p.m. The gravel road was often used by fishermen to reach Alum Creek. But when he noticed the car was still there at noon the next day, he went to investigate. He found the driver's side door open and a handful of bobby pins scattered on the top of the car roof. 
Then he saw what looked like a man's footprint on the ground on the passenger side of the car. And then, just 50 yards from the car in the creek, he spotted the body of a woman lying face up in about a foot of water. The car was Janice's orange and white Chevy Vega. Janice was nude, her clothes strewn about the creek bank. Police searched further and found Brandon. He was face up about 50 yards downstream, wearing his diapers and his tennis shoes. Stanley Beetleman was at home about two miles away when he heard a radio report that a woman and child had been discovered in the creek. He rushed to the scene where he confirmed it was his family. Within minutes, more than 20 Beetleman relatives, including Janice's mother, had joined him at the site. All of them had heard the same report on the radio. The coroner determined Janice had been raped and strangled. She had several bruises on her head, suggesting she had been beaten with a fist. Brandon had been suffocated, likely with a pillow that was found near the recovery site. Police interviewed people who lived in the area and shockingly learned that several of them had heard the attack as it was happening. Listen to this. Residents living on Clubhouse Drive said they heard a woman screaming and a baby crying sometime before 11 p.m. in the area of Putter Avenue. There was a shrub line that prevented anyone from seeing anything. They also heard a muffled male voice saying, shut up and keep him quiet. And a woman's voice saying, don't cry, baby. A resident called for help, but reached the Mifflin Township Fire Department instead of the police. Mifflin Township is on the border of Columbus. A paramedic squad arrived at 11.13 p.m., and they also heard the voices. But they were paramedics, not police. So they radioed Columbus, and within seven minutes, two cruisers and a helicopter arrived. But a search of the area turned up nothing. Incredibly, knowledge of that incident never reached the Columbus detectives who were investigating the double homicide. The first time they'd heard about it was when a Columbus dispatch story shared interviews with local residents two days after the murder. And so, prompted by that revelation, the detectives went to Putter Road to search for clues. Putter had been barricaded the past two years because people had been using it to dump garbage in a more isolated area of the neighborhood. And there, detectives found their crime scene. They recovered jewelry and other items that belonged to Janice. Police put together a meticulous timeline of the day's events. The Beetlemans, Janice, Stanley, and Brandon, all left their apartment about 11 that morning, headed for a friend's house. They pulled into a service station at 11.20 a.m., bought some gas, then continued on to Germain Drive. Stanley belonged to a motorcycle club, and he stored his bike at his friend's because the Beetlemans didn't have a garage at their apartment complex. At 12.15 p.m., Janice and little Brandon headed back home, 
and Stanley spent the rest of the afternoon riding his motorcycle with his friends. At 4.30 p.m., Janice and her son went to her aunt's house on Bonham Avenue. Janice's 14-year-old brother was already at the house, so she took him to White Castle and picked up hamburgers for all of them. At 7.30 p.m., Janice and her aunt took the baby over to see Stanley's mom so she could have some quality grandma time. Janice's teenage brother stayed behind at the aunt's house. After a two-hour visit, Janice, Brandon, and the aunt returned to the aunt's house. Janice called Stanley, he was home now, to say she'd be heading home soon. But first, she dropped her 14-year-old brother off at her mom's house. Janice visited her mom briefly, even wrote out a shopping list. She told her mom she intended to stop at the Kroger grocery store at the Northern Lights Shopping Center before heading home. At 10.30 p.m., Janice said her goodbyes. Her brother carried the baby to the back seat of the Chevy Vega and put him on a pillow that was lying on the back seat. The next 30 minutes are a complete mystery. If Janice had attempted to go to Kroger's, she would have found that the store was already closed. They closed at 10 p.m. on Sundays. Maybe she was accosted in the store parking lot. Or maybe somehow she was waylaid before she even got there. Because by 11 p.m., those residents at Bridgeview Hills saw her car drive around a barricade and then heard her screams and the baby's cries. Detectives speculated that she and Brandon were likely killed right there on Putter Avenue and that her assailants probably moved from there because they heard the police helicopter arriving. The fact that the assailants found their way from the barricaded road to a rarely used service road under the Alger Road Bridge, about a quarter mile away, suggested to detectives these were people who were very familiar with the area. Now, for all of Columbus, it was hard to ignore the similarities of the double homicide of Lynn Vest and Jeremy Pickens the previous year. And Columbus detectives acknowledged they seemed a lot alike. Both Janice Beetleman and Lynn Vest were in their early 20s, full-time wives and mothers living in Columbus. Both were running routine errands with a child in tow when they were set upon. Lynn was likely abducted from a store parking lot. Maybe Janice had been as well. In both cases, the women were strangled and the children were suffocated. And detectives really came to believe that in both cases, there were at least two male attackers involved. But there were also differences. Vest and her nephew were white. Janice and Brandon were black. Also, Vest wasn't raped. Janice was. It was hard to know if those differences were enough to suggest different killers. Now, there was one other small interesting thing that happened. Within days of Janice's murder, apparent vigilantes calling themselves RAGE, which stood for Rape Avengers Through Group Enforcement, mailed local media and law enforcement officials packages. They contained canning jars filled with a clear liquid and what resembled a male animal sex organ. 
Also in the package were newspaper clippings of three recent rape murders and a warning that said, stop rape in this city or we will. Officials learned the jars were shipped at a cost of $13 each to the Columbus Safety Director, the Franklin County Common Pleas Administrative Judge, the County Prosecutor, the city's four television stations, and Columbus's two newspapers. The packages listed a return address of the Columbus Correctional Facility and used the name of a woman who had authored a book about rape. That was a wild goose chase. But if Columbus police ever figured out who was behind the rage packages, it was never publicly reported. Now, if you have info in this case, tips can be submitted anonymously online at stopcrime.org or by calling Crime Stoppers at 614-461-8477. All right. Well, that's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-size Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. Ohio Mysteries is produced by Stephen Yoder and Paula Schleiss. Special thanks to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you, Audionautics, Daniel Birch, and Adderin for the music. And of course, to all of you who support our show by listening and telling friends and family about us. You can find us on Twitter at Mysteries Ohio. You can find us on Facebook by just searching for Ohio Mysteries. We are also on Instagram at Ohio Mysteries. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.